poems, they show the couple sitting together at a cafe or a restaurant or something, and they're deliberating over the, the homes and the options, right? They're weighing the options. Do we go with this one or do we go with that one? Uh, and, and, and then it kind of walks you through. And, and the whole show really kind of hinges on the differences be- between the places, right? The, the, the key differences and, and what the, the feature of this home versus this home and what this one could look like and what, versus what that one could look like, that sort of thing. This morning in the text that we're going to study, we have a comparison between two different places, both of which are extremely significant in the story of Israel. And remember that the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrews. That's the reason that it bears that title. The book itself is addressed to believers who came to faith from Judaism. So these were Hebrew converts, if you will, people who came to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the chosen one of God. They trusted in him by faith. They, they, they saw themselves still very much as Hebrews, though, as Jews. They didn't think of themselves as uh, converting from their ethnicity because to them, being a Jew was more than just a religion. It was really their identity itself. It was their ethnicity. It was who they were. And so the earliest believers that converted from Judaism saw them still, themselves still very much as, as Hebrews, as, as rightly as they were. And so as the writer of Hebrews is writing to these believers and he's addressing their needs and talking about things that are happening. One of the things that we see that is an undercurrent throughout the book that he addresses is the idea that they might somehow abandon their faith in Christ and turn back to the law. That there was the temptation that would have been present for them to have to have trusted in Christ and followed in Christ, but now because the heat was getting turned up, because of persecutions and trials and things that they were facing, it might have seemed as though the easier thing to do would have been to just go back to what they had known, go back to what was more comfortable, go back to what was more familiar. And the writer of Hebrews is addressing them saying, no, we we need to hold fast to the confession of faith that we've made. Rather than turning away from Christ, we need to draw near to Him. In in our hour of need, when, when, when our when our lives are faced with problems and and trials and other things, rather than abandoning our faith, we need to draw even closer to God so that we might receive the grace and the strength that we need in those moments. That's a consistent theme that we've studied again and again throughout the book of Hebrews. In the passage that we're going to study this morning, though, he addresses that specific idea, but he, he uses the comparison here between the Old Testament uh, mountain of Mount Sinai, okay, which was the mountain in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Exodus, as the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness. Sinai was the place where God spoke and he gave the law to the children of Israel. It was meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai that God gave them the law through Moses. And then he compares that against in the New Testament sense, the, the mountain of Zion. Zion is the mountain where Jerusalem was located, the city of David, the city of God. But over time, Zion took on this even greater meaning that Zion became itself a, a picture of the, not only the dwelling place of God, but the eternal dwelling place of God. And so Zion becomes the language that is used in the Old Testament in, with the prophets, especially the prophet Isaiah, uses the term Zion again and again to refer to future things. Not only 
not only speaking of the literal physical location of Zion, but referring to Zion in reference to this fulfillment of God's promises, speaking of heaven, speaking of things that are to come. And the New Testament picks up on that and carries that consistent theme, speaking of Zion, the new Jerusalem, the eternal dwelling place of God. And so there's this comparison between these two mountains, Sinai and Zion, and why they're significant and what they represent ultimately in in the sense of representing the old versus the new, law versus grace, the old ways versus the new ways. And so this passage that we're going to study this morning carries this this idea throughout. And I want us to study this together. So let's start in Hebrews 12, verse 18. We're going to finish out chapter 12 this morning. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Now we'll talk more about this in a minute, but he's referencing the events of Exodus chapters 19 and 20 when God gave the law to the children of Israel at Sinai. He goes on to say, verse 20, For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels and feastal gathering to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkle blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Notice, even just in these verses, the comparison. Look at, look at the differences in referring to Sinai, right? A blazing fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, sound of a trumpet with a voice who's made the words, uh, voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken, uh, that, that causes them to tremble in fear, and then compare that against what he, the way he describes Zion, right? It's a heavenly place, innumerable angels and feastal gathering, assembly of the firstborn, that, that, that there is God and the spirits of righteous who are made perfect, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, sprinkled with blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so there's this stark contrast, this comparison between these, these two. But then look at what he says in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, he's, he's continuing what we studied last week in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. He's continuing upon this idea that it is through God's discipline that He is molding us and shaping us into who He wants to, us to be, ultimately. That we should not think of God's judgment as His, His punishment out of anger, but rather we should understand that God disciplines us as a sign of His love for us. As every father disciplines their children, God disciplines those whom He loves. God disciplines His children and that there's a purpose 
in God's discipline, a purpose in our pain, if you will, that God is using that discipline to shake loose our love and affection for the things of this world so that instead our love and our affection might be, might be attached to Him. And so there's a real point here in what he's saying. Let's not be so in love with the things of the world, so captivated by the things of the world, that we would rather turn back and love and worship and pursue the things of this world instead of pursuing the God who has set us free from the problem of our sin and the pains of this life. And so the point is, as we go through discipline, as we go through hardship, as we endure suffering, Let's do it with the understanding that God is working in us, molding us, shaping us, making us more righteous, more perfect by the work of Christ so that our lives might reflect Him, His glory for the world around us. That's the real point. If you want to summarize Hebrews chapter 12 and and bring it all together, that's the point of what he's saying. And we'll see that here as we make this comparison between Sinai and Zion. And so I've got... 14 different points here, right? I know that everybody's thinking, okay, are we going to get out of here in time to catch the Super Bowl tonight? And the the answer is maybe. Maybe we will. I don't know. But I have these points, but we're going to move through these points rather quickly this morning as 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 we notice the comparison between Sinai and Zion. And rather than Rather than digging in really, really deeply with each one of these, because frankly, each one of these points, the points of comparison could be a sermon in and of itself, I want to move through these, and, and I want us to see the bigger picture that's at work here as we understand the differences at play between these, these mountains and all that they represent, Sinai and Zion. We see that on Sinai, God gave Israel the law. Sinai was the place where God gave Israel the law. It was the mountain where he spoke to God. I told you that these these first few verses especially are referencing the events of Exodus chapters 19 and 20. If you study Exodus 19 and 20, what you find is that God spoke to Moses. And he said, Moses, I want you to gather all the children of Israel around the mountain of Zion because I'm going to speak to you. And on the day that I, uh, you're going to gather the children together and you're going to have this, this, this holy, this sacred gathering. And on the third day, I'm going to come down and I'm going to sit at the top of the mountain and you're going to see me. You're going to see my presence. But when that happens, let no one approach the mountain and touch the mountain because if anyone touches the mountain, they will surely die. And if they touch the mountain, no one else is to touch that person. Rather, they're to be stoned to death. No one else is, no animal, no, no object is to touch the mountain. You alone, Moses, are to come up and meet with me at the top of Mount Sinai. And so, Sinai. And so this happens, right? That, that, that the presence of God comes down. It was a, a, a cloud of fire, and they saw this, this thick smoke that rested on top of Sinai. And Moses traveled to the top of the mountain, and it was there that God spoke with him, and God wrote the law of commandments on the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments. And Moses carried those, those laws, those commands, down to the children of Israel. And then as he comes down, we see in chapter 20, Exodus 20, that as Moses comes down with the commandments that God has given him, that the voice of God spoke with, a tr- with the sound of a trumpet and the blast of the, of the, the noise itself that the voice of God created was so loud that the children of Israel begged Moses that God would not speak to them because it was more than they could bear. And can you imagine that? Today, we 
Today, we, we, would, we would love for God to speak to us, right? I mean, how we would long for God to just make himself so clear to us that there would be no question that he wants us to do this or do that, right? I mean, we would love it if God could somehow just speak directly to us in an audible voice in a way that we could unmistakably, undeniably know that it was him. And yet when that happened in the Old Testament, the children of of Israel said, oh, please, Moses, don't let God do that again. Don't let God speak to us anymore. Let God speak to you, and then you tell us what God says. Because it was so great, so mighty, so powerful that they thought they might die just from the sound of it. It shook the mountain, it says in Exodus 19 and 20. And that's the picture that That's the picture that the writer of Hebrews is creating, this comparison. He's saying, no longer do we worship a God who keeps us at a distance, who says, you cannot approach, you cannot touch, you cannot come near. Instead, now we know God by grace because he sent us Jesus. And whereas once we we knew the mighty voice of God that shook the earth, now we know the, the, the gentle embrace of a loving Savior who says to us, come near, draw near to me. It was on Sinai that God gave Israel the law, Sinai the place where God spoke to them, but it was on Zion that Jesus conquers the law with grace. And so we see in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, that that no longer are we bound by the law, but now because of Jesus, we are under grace. It was on Sinai that God established the old covenant with Israel. It was there at Sinai that God spoke and he gave Moses the law and the law set the standard for how the children of Israel were to relate to God. The law itself established the boundaries, the rules, the parameters for this covenant relationship that existed between Israel and God. But on Zion, on that place of Calvary where Jesus was crucified, we see that Jesus established a new and a better covenant. That's been a consistent theme in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 7, verse 22. Chapter 8, verse 6 and 13. Chapter 9, verse 15. Chapter 10, verse 16. We've seen again and again that Jesus creates a new and a better covenant that is enacted, it tells us in Hebrews, on better promises. Because the promises are the promises of Jesus, the promise of his life, of forgiveness of sins. No longer do we have to go through a priest and and physical sacrifices, but now, once and for all, Jesus has offered himself for us. His blood poured out as a sign of this new covenant mediated between us and God. On Sinai, God demanded obedience from his people. God demanded that they obey. No one could touch the mountain lest they would die. No one could come near him. They were to to wait as God spoke and gave the law to Moses. God demanded their obedience through the law, that the only way for them to have a right relationship with him was through obedience to his commandments and through the law that he had provided and that they were to obey and fulfill the law. But we understand by the New Testament teaching that there was no possible way that they could keep the law. In fact, the book of Galatians tells us that the real purpose of the law was to show us that we couldn't keep the law so that it would cause us to long and look for something else. And of course, that something else was Jesus who conquered the law with grace. And so on Sinai, God demands obedience. But on Zion, where Jesus was offered for us, we see that Jesus was obedient for us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 tells us that he became obedient to the point of death on a cross, that Jesus obeyed God by offering his life as a sacrifice for you and for me. So on Sinai, 
God demanded obedience from his children. On Zion, Jesus was perfectly obedient for us because we couldn't hope to be perfectly obedient ourselves. On Sinai, God spoke with Moses on behalf of the people. God told Moses that he was to approach him at the top of Mount Sinai. And then as Moses approached God at the top, God actually told Moses to go back and get Aaron and to bring Aaron back with him. And so that's what Moses did. And it was there at the top of Mount Sinai where God spoke with with Moses, where Moses experienced the presence of God. And God gave him the law. Moses mediated the law, mediated God's commands to the people. He was the the go-between, if you will. But we understand in the book of Hebrews that, that on Zion, God spoke a better word. A better word than the, than the blood of Abel through the blood of Christ. Even in this passage this morning, right? We see in verse 24 that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel was killed by his brother Cain. And when Abel was killed, his blood cried out from the ground for vengeance. His blood demanded vengeance. And yet Jesus willingly offered his life as a sacrifice to appease the wrath of God, to pay for. And and no longer does the blood of Christ demand vengeance. Instead, the blood of Christ says that the debt has been paid. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So on Sinai, God spoke with Moses on behalf of the people. On Zion, Jesus' blood speaks a better word for you and for me. On Sinai, God was hidden in a cloud of smoke. He was hidden in a cloud of smoke that rested on top of the mountain. It says here that our God is a consuming fire. And that's what, that's what happened at Sinai. That there was this consuming, this all-consuming fire that fell on top of the mountain. And the, the smoke was thick and it was the presence of God that was there to symbolize that God was dwelling there in that place. Now, of course, God dwells everywhere, but his presence was localized, was, was manifested in that place at that moment, in that time. And, and the children of Israel saw with their eyes this thick cloud of smoke. They couldn't see the presence of God because it was too much. In fact, the presence of God was so great that when Moses came down off of the mountain, his face shone radiantly and he actually had to wear a veil to cover up his face because it shined bright. It glowed in the dark from having experienced just the presence of God. But We see that on Zion, no longer was God hidden. Instead, on Zion, Jesus was lifted up for everyone to see. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 32, that I, when I would be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. So on Sinai, God was hidden in a cloud of smoke, but on on Zion, God in the presence of Jesus was lifted up high for everyone to see. Everyone to see that he was broken and bruised as punishment for our sin. For everyone to see that he was offering himself as payment for our sin. So that all would see, so that none could mistake this true reality that God loved us enough to come and to die on the cross for us. And so on Zion, Jesus was lifted up for everyone to see so that he might draw us to himself. On Sinai, God commanded that Israel keep their distance. They were to stay away. No one could touch the mountain or they would die. And if anyone touched the mountain, that person was to be stoned to death and not touched by anyone else because of their disobedience. So they were to keep their distance because they were not holy, because they were not righteous. And we see that on Zion, Jesus calls for us to draw near. 
Because of His work, now we can be made righteous. On Sinai, there was no hope for us to be righteous, for no hope for us to be purified or washed clean. But on Zion, we see that through the blood of Jesus, we now can be forgiven and set free, sanctified by the work of Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, chapter 10, verse 22, call for us to draw near, to draw near and be close to God, no longer at a distance. On Sinai, God wrote the law in words of stone. And so God gave Moses the Ten Commandments that were etched in these, these words for Israel to obey, etched in stone. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 refers to that as the ministry of death carved in letters of stone. Because, of course, the law itself couldn't save us. Paul refers to it in 2 Corinthians as a ministry of death because he understood that the purpose of the law was to trap us in sin. The purpose of the law was to expose our sin, to show us that there was a need for something greater. And so on Sinai, God trapped us, if you will, in sin. The the inevitableness of our sin exposed by the righteous perfection of God's law written in words of stone. But on Zion, Jesus no longer spoke uh, through, through these words of stone. Instead, he wrote his words on our heart. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16 tells us that he would put his words on our heart and in our minds, right? In other words, the word of God has, has come near to us that we may know him personally. No longer, are we, no longer are we bound to a law that we cannot hope to keep, but now, by the work of God, he has... He has paid the price for us. He has done the work for us. He has put his word on our hearts so that when God looks at us by faith, because we've trusted in Jesus, God sees the work of Christ. He sees the atonement of Christ paid for us. And so on Zion, Jesus put his word on our hearts. So there's this this unmistakable contrast between the, the old system, if you will, the old way, the, the way represented by the old covenant and the new covenant of Jesus. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying to the children of Israel, listen, just because things have gotten tough, just because you're facing difficulty, just because you're facing persecution and trials, just because others are, 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 are turning up the heat against you, don't abandon your faith. Now, Hear me on this, because that is, that is precisely the word that you and I need to hear today, right? Just because it's getting harder and harder, it seems, to be a, 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 a Christian, a, a Bible-believing follower of Jesus in our world, in our culture today. Just because it seems like it's increasingly unpopular to stand for our faith, just because the world around us is changing their standard and demanding of us that we would do the same does not mean that we should abandon our faith, but instead, as the writer of Hebrews says, we should draw near to God. In those moments when our needs are great, rather than running from the Lord, we should We should draw closer to Him than receive the grace, the strength that we need to make it through the trials of this life. This is such an important word for us to hear. And as we saw last week, how is it that God does that work in our lives? What's through the uncomfortable and even sometimes painful process of discipline that God will essentially 
He will release all of our, our love and our affection from the things of this world so instead it might wholly rest on Him. God uses that uncomfortableness. God wants to use the, the problems, the trials, the pains that we face in this life to remind us that we were never meant to put our hope in the things of this world anyway, that He was always the answer that our hearts were searching for. And so He will use even the, the, the discipline that is necessary to, to expose those areas in our hearts and our lives where we aren't fully trusting in and following him by faith. It's the difference between Sinai and Zion, the difference between law and grace, the difference between the old way and the new, the difference between a, a way that required that we would be perfect and obedient and a way that says Jesus was perfect and obedient for you. It's a difference between a way where God said, I am holy and righteous and you may not approach me, and a, and, and a way where God says, through the work of my son, now you are righteous and I welcome you in as sons and daughters. The difference here, there's such a stark contrast. And, and the point is that we live in light of Zion. We look to Zion. We look to the work that Jesus has done for us. We don't have to go back to the old way. We don't have to return to Sinai in the wilderness because now we live in light of the fulfillment, the reality of these promises that God has made for us. So, so how do we respond? What do we do? Well, the passage tells us. We don't have to wonder, what am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to be faithful? Because the passage tells us quite explicitly, this is how you respond. Let's look in verse 25. First of all, it says this, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Remember in the Old Testament, God spoke and the children of Israel said, no, it's too much, Moses. Tell God not to speak to us anymore. May he only speak through you because it's too much. We can't take it. But now, the writer of Hebrews says, see that you don't refuse him who is speaking. Don't, don't tune out God just because it's hard, just because it's difficult, just because it requires sacrifice. Don't, don't refuse him who is speaking, but instead draw closer to him. So the, the ways that we respond, the right response to Zion, the first point is that we would embrace grace. That we would live in the grace that God has given us. We're no longer bound by the law. We're no longer captive to a system that requires that we be perfect even though there's no way we can. Instead, we live in light of the grace that Jesus offers, which is why the New Testament points us again and again to the grace of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 is perhaps the, the most clear and most unmistakable statement of God's grace. And it says there in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, it is by grace that you have been saved, and not by works, lest anyone should boast. God has saved us by grace, and so let us live in light of that. Let's embrace the grace. We shouldn't tune God out and said we should embrace Him. We shouldn't run from God just because things are difficult. Instead, it's in the midst of difficulties that we recognize our need for Him, and we draw near in those times. We embrace what God is doing. We embrace His discipline as sons and daughters who understand that God will use discipline for a purpose in our life. We embrace the, the trials that we may have to go through. Not that we enjoy the trials themselves, not that, we would, not that we would learn to love the pain somehow, but that we recognize that God will use even the pain of this life to show us his greatness in a way that we would never experience it otherwise. So we embrace his grace. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And if you're here this morning, 
And maybe what you find is that in the midst of everything that you're going through in life, in the midst of all the, the troubles, the realities that you, that you face, right, whatever that may be, look like in your particular situation, in your life, in your context, and maybe for some reason you're, you're tempted to just throw up your hands and walk away. Maybe for some even, you've never even come to the place where you feel like you really truly have embraced faith. What you need to hear is this word this morning. Embrace grace. Embrace God's grace. Now, the Bible makes it clear that God's grace is not a license for us to go on and living in, go on in, in sin. In fact, go to Romans chapter 6, look at verse 14. Romans 6 verse 14 tells us that we, we have been set free from the law by grace. But the very next verse, Romans 6.15 says, What then? Should we go on and, and, and sin all the more so that grace should abound? He says, Absolutely not. The point of grace isn't to give us a license to sin that we can do whatever we want. In other words, it's to set us free from the sin that, that, that trapped us, that enslaved us, that had us shackled and bound. So the point is this, is we embrace grace. That doesn't mean that we do whatever we want and we just, hey, God's, gonna, God's paid for it all. In the end, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm living in grace, not the law. No, anyone who would live that way doesn't understand the, the, the weight of their sin and the price that was paid for them. Listen, God's grace is free, but it was not cheap. You understand? God's grace is free, but it cost him everything to pay the price for your sin. But because he loved you, he was willing to pay that price. He was willing to give everything for you. So a right response to God, a right response to the work of God on Zion that we see in this passage is that we would embrace grace, that we would not refuse him who is speaking, but rather that we would we would draw near. Now notice the, word, notice the word of warning that is put in here as well. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. In other words, listen, if you try, if, if you try to somehow refuse God or escape, it's, it's futile. There, there's no way ultimately that we can escape the wrath of God. If Every one of us, every one of us has a decision to make. Either we will embrace God's grace and receive his forgiveness through the blood of Christ, or we will pay the price for our sins ourselves. One day, we will all stand judgment before God. And there are only two options in that moment. Either God looks at you and he sees, by faith in Jesus, he sees payment for your sins by the work of Jesus, or you have refused and rejected that free gift of God, in which case you must now pay the price for your own sin. It's black or white. The scripture makes it clear. So the warning here is, is, is intended to get our attention. Listen, if they didn't escape before, we're not going to escape either, right? There's no way out of this. The, the mortality rate is 100%, right? Death is the common denominator that we are all facing. We will all die someday and in that moment we will stand judgment before God and it will truly be exposed then did you embrace his grace did you accept by faith Jesus as Lord and Savior or did you refuse him who was speaking and thus you are condemned in your sin I pray that you would embrace God's grace secondly the passage tells us this let us be grateful. Let us be grateful. In other words, give thanks. That we would live with gratitude. That we would live with thankfulness. 
How is it that we really demonstrate that we, that we understand what God's grace is all about? How is it that we really understand that we get it and that, we, and that by faith we, we have drawn near to him, that we're not refusing him? Well, we give thanks. It, it will show in the way that we live, right? If you, truly, if you truly trust in Christ by faith, it will be obvious in your life. And one of the proofs that we're given is that we will live lives of gratitude, of thanks. Show me a sinner who has been forgiven by grace, and I will show you a person who is truly thankful. I mean, if someone really understands the weight of their sin and the fact that by, by, by the work of Christ, all of that was taken away, there's no other right response but gratitude and thankfulness to God. There's, there's nothing we could do to earn it. There's no possible way that we could point to the record of our lives and say, yeah, well, you know, I was good enough, so God picked me, right? There's nothing we can do on our own to earn or deserve that grace. And yet, the way that we demonstrate that we really understand it, that we really, truly get it, is we, we live lives of, of gratefulness, of gratitude. And so he calls us, quite simply, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I shared with you the same quote a few weeks ago, and I'll say it again. It's a quote attributed to Jim Elliott, who said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, right? And that is the point of this. Let us be thankful that by grace, let us be thankful that God has given us something that cannot be taken from us, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Why? Because it's not dependent upon you. If somehow the kingdom of God rested on your shoulders or my shoulders, we would all be in trouble because that can be shaken. But because it rests on the firm foundation of Christ and his work for us, the cornerstone, as Paul calls him, of our faith, let us give thanks because that cannot be shaken. And then secondly, he says this this, this, this way that we demonstrate that we get it. The right response is that we would offer ourselves, that we would live lives of worship. He says, offer to God acceptable worship. The New Testament makes it clear that the worship that God is seeking is not just words of praise. So when he talks about acceptable worship here, of course, he's not talking about that we sing the right songs, right? Whether Are they the hymns or the choruses? He's not talking about, right? It's nothing to do with the music that we sing. It's not about do we have the right instruments or no instruments or, or is it, it's not about any of that at all. When he, when he talks about offering acceptable worship, that means that we offer worship to God on the terms that he has defined. Well, okay, so how has God defined that for us? Jesus spoke to the woman of the well in John chapter 4, and he says to her, an hour is coming and yet now has come when the Father is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 tells us that we should offer our lives as living sacrifices, that this is our spiritual worship. Psalm chapter 51 tells us that a broken heart and a contrite spirit he will not despise. What is it that God wants of us? He wants us to offer ourselves to him. The sacrifice that he wants is, is our lives. The offering that he wants is that we would offer ourselves. The right way to worship him is by surrendering everything we have in, in worship of him. 
So a right response to, to God's grace, a right response to Zion, as it were, that we would embrace his grace, that we would give thanks, and that we would offer ourselves, our lives, as worship to him. This morning, do you see the evidence of these points in your life? Clearly, we can understand the difference between the law and grace. Clearly, we can see that, that God did a new work in Jesus, that he made a new way for us, a way by his own blood. But the question is, have you really embraced his grace? Are you living a life of gratitude, and are you offering up yourself in worship of him? In a moment this morning, we'll have a time of response and in that, in that moment, in our time of response, as the music plays, I want to invite you that if today that you recognize that there's never been a moment in your life where you have embraced grace, where you have by faith trusted in Jesus, that you would come and that you would make today the day that you begin a relationship with him through faith, that you would demonstrate a heartfelt desire to turn away from your sin and to follow after Jesus by by casting yourself on his mercy, by crying out to him, confessing him as Lord and Savior. And if you've never done that before, I would love nothing more than to walk you through a simple prayer of faith where you would trust in Jesus Christ. All the time we explain it in, in, in very simple, childlike terms. that We say it's, it's, it's the ABCs of what it means to follow him. The, the Bible lays it out in clear terms that we would accept uh, that, that we would admit, rather, that we are, are sinners, accepting the, the, the idea that we have sinned, but admitting our sin before God, rather that we would believe that God sent Jesus to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sin, and that we would confess him as Savior and Lord. Admit, believe, confess. It's the ABCs of how you trust in him by faith. And if today, if you're ready to trust in Jesus, to surrender your life to him, I pray that you would come and take my hand during the invitation. Just say, I'm, I'm, I'm ready today to embrace grace. Maybe you've taken that step and you find yourself in the, in the situation that, that the writer of Hebrews is addressing here. The, the heat has been turned up a little bit. Things are getting hard. Life is difficult. There are problems that you face, and it's tempting to turn back and just go with what was easy and comfortable. And what God wants to say to you today is, don't quit. In fact, in that moment when, you, when, when things are hard, rather than turning away, draw even closer Embrace his grace. Give thanks with the way that you live. Offer yourself as a sacrifice to him. Make that your worship. So during this time of response, our altars will be open. And if you want to come and just in a moment of commitment before the Lord, just, just, just to, to kneel here in prayer and to draw near through that physical act of, of, of worship this morning, then we would invite you to do that as we sing. That you would be bold enough and willing to act on obedience to take that step and to draw near to him as we, as we respond by faith this morning. And so I want to invite you now to, to pray with me. And, and after we pray, the music will begin. The, the, this moment of invitation is open. And if God is speaking, then I pray during our invitation that you would come. Would you pray with me now? Lord God, we thank you that by grace we are no longer bound to the, the law that, that really trapped us in our sin, but instead now, we can receive forgiveness. We can receive 